welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange with Leander Young, where we dig into conversations with seasoned musicians to discuss their life, art, and the faith of jazz as they see it. In this episode, we interview one of the all-time greats, band leaders, sidemen from Detroit, Michigan, Mr. Lewis Hayes. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Improv Exchange. Today, I have the honor to interview one of the legends in the jazz world in terms of drumming, percussion, and everything, Mr. Lewis Hayes. Sir, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here, and uh, let's speak about it. Yes, let's go all into it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm with you. So, first of all, I guess for the people who don't know you, Short summary of yourself, sir. I was born in 1937 in Detroit, Michigan. My mother was from New Orleans. My father was from Texas. And my mother uh, played piano and sang in the church. My father played piano and drums. And he was the one who started me on this musical voyage. And my, I have a cousin that was also, his name was Claire Stamps. He played, he, he was a very magnificent percussionist, and he was my teacher in Detroit. Okay. Well, sir, question about him, how he got you into drumming, okay? Did you just pretty much see him watching it and you said you wanted to do this? Or was it one of those things where you were given the instrument and you were told to do it? It was um, myself playing piano first, like all the other kids in the neighborhood. And I I did that when I was about seven, eight years old for a very short period of time. And the drums were there. And uh, I watched other kids playing drums and I started uh, actually playing drums and I, and I realized that this was something that I was really talented, really loved to do. And it, it felt good to me. And I said, so I had a natural ability to play the drums because I could, I could do things that a lot of older kids couldn't do at a very young age. Okay. And I must say Detroit, at least during your time when you were a teenager growing up and everything, one of the, best economical cities in the country at the time. And right before you turned 20, I believe, I believe it was 57 or 59. So the real world, when the Motown started. So what made you decide to stay with jazz versus going that route? First thing, Detroit had so many magnificent or high level jazz musicians. It was just, uh, just was phenomenal the art form that these guys and the ability they had to play this art form, this art form called jazz. So I was around that. I was around all of those people when I was very young. And when Motown started, I was not there. I was living in New York. I, I moved to New York in 1956. Okay. Motown started. Horse Silver, there was a bassist, Doug Watkins, and, and, and a trumpeter, Donald Byrd who was appearing with the Jazz Messengers, Art Blakey and the Jazz Messengers. And they were appearing, and they came back home to the hometown for some reason, and we got together at a place called the West End one evening, it was an after-hour place, and we uh, 
tuned in musically. And uh, when he came back to New York, Horace Silver, he was the pianist with Art Blakey, the Jazz Messengers. He was leaving the group. The, the group was uh, Art Blakey, the Jazz Messengers, and Horace Silver going to get his quintet together. And they told Horace Silver to get the baby boy out of Detroit, and they did. Horace Silver, he called me, and that's when I came to Detroit in uh, 56 and joined Horace Silver's quintet. Uh, first of all, that this is one of the times I can honestly say I wish we were doing this in person because Blowing the Blues Away is one of my favorite albums. I actually made sure I tracked down an original vinyl print of that. I have it in my collection. I would have loved for you to sign it. But just playing with Horace Silver in general. So you start in its the six pieces of Silver, I believe, is the first one you did with him, correct? Correct. And how was that experience? How did that come about? Just the experience with him. How was that? Well, Horace Silver, it couldn't have been better. He we got along just just wonderfully. And listening to him, watching him playing his his art form, the piano, and we would have rehearsals, and I would go over to his place he stayed, apartment, and listen to him play these his own compositions. And I had the freedom to do what to uh, to accompany him and in, in the artist anyway I wanted to he didn't never write anything down it was just up to me to use my own ability to think and creativity to play his music and and that's the way it started out and so I had uh, three years of dealing I did five albums on blue note with horse silver during that time and I had to, the freedom to just to be myself and be creative, and I grew uh, really during those three years with Horse from 56 to 59. Also, I was at that time able to, uh, so many, as you know, in New York and so many musicians on a high level here, this is the Mecca. So I was recording with some of the greatest artists at that time here also, like John Coltrane and other people. Yeah, let me ask you about one of them at the time, of course. You have, while you were playing with Mr. Horace Silver, you were recording with a certain saxophone player named John Coltrane. So how did you get put onto that gig or with him? Uh, I, I really don't know how, because because during that time, people were recording a lot and they just would, would, uh, was able to choose other artists that they wanted to appear with at certain times. And you would just go and rehearse for a day or maybe and go out to the studio and just make this history. And we were all living in the same neighborhood. I mean, I was, at that time, I was living between 85th Street and on, in New York and 101st Street. I remember Coltrane was living on the 103rd. And there was a lot of just magnificent people, uh, artists during that time. So it was just uh, a natural thing that happened. Okay, so what was your favorite or album that you did with him at the time? Or I can't recall any of those name of any of those albums. I I, I remember one was uh, uh what was it called Main Street Fifty Eight, and that was something with the Last Train. Yes, yeah, that was something, and, and so I did maybe about three, but it was so many artists that I had opportunity to actually make history with during that time. Uh, and and um, so that was a 
very important time in our history because a lot of musicians from the generation before were still here, like Coleman Hawkins and Roy Eldridge and Joe Jones. He ended up here. He was my mentor. And yes. Lester Young is, goes on and on. Those those people were still active and was here during that time. The thing about Philly Jones that I liked and I loved about is like we had a guest on that came on a few weeks ago, Mr. Mark Johnson. He plays the bass. And okay. Joe Jones grabs him and puts him on with Bill Evans, and he was telling me about that story. And it's just like that's something that a lot of of the youth of current jazz don't really get to experience. Yes, because I think I mean I know during that period of time, they still had groups, bands you could be uh, a part of and be and for a long periods of time, which is not. It's not happening right now. It's not that many groups that are working groups that you could be a part of. And that was a major something that's really very important in order for an artist to be able to grow. And, uh, and, and just to be in the company of the, those fantastic musicians and you learn so much from them. And when you say bands, do you mean like big bands or do you mean like quintets, quartets, stuff like that? Quintets and quartets. When I got here, the big band era was finished. Uh, that was over. That well, that kind of ended in the Second World War time, when a lot of those artists were drafted in the army. So that broke up a lot of black big bands at that time. So when I got here, I was uh, still small. I was able to see uh, me and, uh, around Mr. Duke Ellington and his orchestra. And Mr. Count Basie and his orchestra, they were still appearing. But uh, not a lot of big, big bands, that was all gone through at the time. So I was around the small band area. And what did a lot of the big band artists do? Did they have problems converting or adapting to the quintets and the quartets? Uh, they were able to be working in the studios. A lot of a lot of studio work was, uh, was was happening during that time, which was very very good for a lot of people. Uh, everybody, people in the arts find their own level and their different directions to go in. There's so many different ways you can look at yourself and directions you can take. I just chose to be uh, artists that play that play this art form they call jazz, bebop. So I stayed with that. I started from the beginning till now at this time. But it's a lot of different directions a person, artist can go through. It depends on the ability they have and the way they think. So what is something that your mentor push, put upon you or pushed upon you? Well, Joe was just a magnificent person and he could express himself very well on the instrument and off. And, uh, for one, I give one example. I had the opportunity to go to Europe at one point with Cannonball Adderley and the quintet. And uh, Joe Jones was there with, uh, with, with his padres like Coleman Hawkins and Roy Eldridge. And we would go to different places. And I was, was brand new at that. And I wanted to see in different countries, see things that was going on in the country. So after the concert, I would hang out and, and uh, 
And then kind of make myself a little, a little not get enough sleep. Then we go to the next place. Uh, when you get to a country during that time, eating has certain hours for eating. So when you sometimes we get there in the afternoon, it, you couldn't have dinner, couldn't get to serve certain things to eat. And when it was time for them to have that ability to use time to eat, we would be playing the concert. And when the concert was over, eating hours were over again. So Joe, he explained to me, told me how to get to a, to the hotel and order my food, and they would have it in my room waiting for me, nice and hot, but I got back there, so I didn't have to walk around and look for something to eat in the streets when we got there, because that was before McDonald's and things like that. Also, Joe, uh, when I would, when we would get to a country, I didn't have the opportunity to go straight to the hotel and rest like everybody normally did. Joe would take me straight to the concert hall and show me how to set up the stage. So whatever he asked me to do, I was with him. I did it. And uh, we had this magnificent relationship for all of those years that, uh, that he was around. And uh, there's so many different things I learned from Joe that I'm glad that I had that opportunity to be in his company. Yeah, we just that's something that I wish Jazzine could get back into, mentoring like that. Now, just... Another question off the record, like just because I'm, you brought it up. So coming from Detroit, going to New York, and then going to Europe in the late 50s, culture shock much or was it everything you expected? Well, um, first time going there was, I think, 58 or 59 with Horace Silver. And Nessie being a youngster, it was... Uh, it was, it, was, it was something that was very special. We were in Paris quite a bit. And I was, you know, enjoying all the people. And the people really took the music and, and, and the artists and put you on a high level. So it was a wonderful experience. Uh, and, 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 uh, and I spent a lot of time in Europe over the years, especially with Horace and Cannon. Then I had the opportunity, and Oscar Peterson, I have to talk about Oscar, and, and Oscar Peterson. And then I had the opportunity to have my own groups, and I uh, did a lot of work with my own bands in Europe. Okay, well, since you brought it up already, let's, let's me ask about Cannonball. I might go back to some European questions. You got some great listeners or people who mentor me from over there, but how did you meet the great Cannonball? I don't really have an idea how we met, but Cannonball was uh, here, came here, I, I, maybe it was around 57 or something, and he, uh, I was with, that's with Horace Silver, he had his own quintet at that time. And so he, he, he had a quintet for a period of time, and he disbanded, and he went, he joined Miles Davis. And he dealt with Miles in, in his group for a couple of years. Then one uh, Birdland would have like a off night, a session night, or whatever you want to call it, on Monday or Tuesday, or whatever, whatever I think it was. So on one night, uh, Bobby Timmons, the pianist, and Sam Jones, the bassist, 
and and uh, and Booker Little, the trumpeter, and Hank Mobley, the tenor saxophonist, we were appearing in Birdland together. So when the, when the job was over, Sam Jones came to Bobby Timmons and myself and said, Cannonball has told us that Cannonball is leaving Miles. Do you wish you'd like to be a part of this? Do you have eyes? So I was enjoying myself and very comfortable with Horace Silver at the time. But we thought about it. And after a period of time, I did make the move and go with Horace Silver. I already knew Cannonball and that because it was a, 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 in this community, we all knew each other. Uh, so, and and so I made the, the, the change, made the decision to join Cannonball and that and Sam Jones. Well, Sam was the one first who gave me, asked me about doing, making that change. And it happened, and it turned out to be what a ride that was. I mean, we, I did it from, 59 to 65, and we we uh, really made a lot of history, and uh, and we became very very good friends. It was like it was a real family affair. Any of those recordings stand out the most to you, with Cannonball? Uh, well, the first one, which was in San Francisco. San Francisco okay. jazz workshop, I think, but every one was something special. And Cannon, one of the difference between Horace Silver and Cannon, Horace, he rehearsed quite a bit. And when you got to the, we went to the studio, you were comfortable with what music you were going to play and how you were going to approach certain things. With Cannonball, it was not like that. We didn't rehearse too much. And we did, we made a lot of recordings, but we were so compatible together until it was very, uh, felt good to do it. And we could, we could do that. We could pull it off and everybody was very comfortable with each other. And Sam and myself, we became the dynamic duo, they used to call us, because Sarah, so we, we, we played so well together with such a magnificent feeling. It was a lot of artists really wanted Sam and myself as a team to record with them. So was, and, and I had the first opportunity to record my first recording date as a leader on VJ Records, mm-hmm. uh, with Cannon, and uh, we all did our own things with Cannon, and, and, and it was a wonderful time and experience in my life. Yes, uh, too much to go on that. So before I go into your first album, which I did also listen to and loved, Tell me a Cannonball studio story. Because as I tell people all the time, there's certain things that happen in the studio that is just like, uh, that at least you don't really hear of, that never get documented. Anything that sticks with you? Actually, uh, I'm trying to think of something special, dynamic at this point. And I can't think of anything to say that is uh, coming to mind, that is uh, something that I want to really speak about because we got there, and every mostly all the times. Uh, now, it's one. This wasn't with Cannonball, but it's one date that I made. We call we call I think long great the water long blues. Anyway, I know Jackie McLean was there, and so other artists like that, and Paul Chambers. And the little blue note. And we was 
discussing a lot of things, how we would approach this one composition. So a lot of musicians were speaking in the studio and they left that on the recording date, on the record it came out and everybody's talking before before they went into this composition. Now that I thought was, was very unique because it's still there today. But, but, but in the studio, everything was pretty much straight ahead. Uh, no, I, I can't feel any real complications that uh, I had with anyone. Uh, everybody was just, uh, uh, they, they were compatible and we went and, and went in and, and made the recording and, and enjoyed ourselves because people that were chosen to be on the date we were compatible. So it was enjoyable. Understood. Okay. It's just, even with my bandmates, we have some moments where it's like, uh, that's what I was asking. But your first album, Rip the Boom. Rip the Boom. Yes. Yes. As a percussionist drummer, right there, sir. Beautiful. <laughs> well, we were appearing in Apollo at that time in New York. Mm -hmm. And we played the shows all that day in Cannonball. It was a person, his name was Sid McCoy from Chicago. He was a DJ, a big, large DJ in Chicago at the time. And he asked me to, uh, he would like for me to uh, be a leader of, of my, have my own recording date. I actually was not thinking about that at the time. So he set it up. And Cannonball gave his whole group that was appearing with at that time, which was Matt Adley, his brother, and Sam Jones was playing was bassist. Mm -hmm. Barry Harris from Detroit was the pianist. Then he asked me, who would I like to have play saxophone? So I said to him, Yusuf Latif, who I had the pleasure of, of playing with in Detroit before I left to come to New York. So they got brother Yusuf. And we went into the studio after we had played in Apollo all day. And uh, that's how that recording came about. How long was the gig at the Apollo? We probably was there for a week. A week? And what, for two hours every night? No, it started in the daytime, 12 o'clock or something, because you have shows and, and, and you end, up, you end in, the, in the evening, 10, 11 o'clock at night. You play you, you all day as different shows. It's a theater. I'm mean, excuse me. It's a movie, and then it's uh, it's it's live music. You know, you have a, a lot of times a, a, a comedian, a vocalist, a band, all of those things. Start, you know, like that. So you you're busy the whole day. But when you're young, I was very young. You you can do things like that and uh, and be positive and, and enjoy yourself. Okay, just something building off that. So when you see Harlem today, and I assume you've been there recently, what do you really think is missing from there compared to back then? Well, it's a lot of uh, places that uh, artists could appear at that time that is not there anymore. I mean, people, they don't have an opportunity to experience this art form in Harlem, uh, like naturally everything changes and you can't, you, the places are not open anymore, they're closed. And so 
the, the music is only in a few places and it's not featuring a lot of times this art form. Uh, so that's a big difference. I mean, a lot of people, it's, they're not, they don't have opportunity to experience this art form on a level that they should be able to. And it's, it's, we don't have the groups anymore. I mean, it's not like you can be with a, a group and stay for a long period of time and get your, as they say, you get your craft together. Uh, a lot of the arts now, and this is the way the colleges, and you can deal with it in the colleges. But when, when, the, when the college days are over, it's hard to play in places and still be able to travel and play this art form that you might really love to do. You have to find other ways of doing it. And a lot of people, they, they, they do it. You find other ways, but they, they don't have those places like in traveling in America like they used to. Okay, well, colleges and jazz is something that I talk about here, and I don't know if you know my opinion on it, but what about you? What is your take on the universities and jazz? Do you think it's been helping? Do you think it's been harmful? Give me your honest point of view. I think it helps. You get a chance to uh, be in classes and have a, uh, it depends on your teacher. I mean, a person that's there, what kind of exposure do they have? What do they know about it? Uh, a, a lot of times, I mean, that, that varies with the people that are around, but you do get a chance to be exposed to the art form. And I, I noticed that uh, it's a lot of colleges that have big bands and that's their experience. I mean, I've had the opportunity to be in Michigan State and and do and dealt with the band there. And also uh, in Florida, the band there, you, you, you know, I mean, I enjoy college. I really do. I enjoy that environment. I always did. When I was with Cannonball, we had opportunity then to play at several colleges in the South, appear at those colleges. And at that time, I was uh, in my 20s, looking very young. And I used to go to the colleges and hang out all the time. And uh, they thought I was a student anyway, but I enjoyed that environment, uh, and and I, you, you know, it's it's uh, it's, it's good exposure for, for people, for young people. It's just that, uh, like I said, after that, you have to uh, think about what direction you want to go when that time is over in your life. Uh, one thing I would say is that at least college back then, the kids there were more interested in jazz. At least the main student body. You were selling out the student halls, I would assume, right? Yes. Okay. I'm not sure. I like to believe that if our big names went to, I just say, University of Texas to perform, will they be able to sell out like a Beyonce, like an Usher? No good. No, 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 no. Okay. No, this is altogether differently not different now. And a lot of... Uh, Groups then they didn't appear in colleges that much, but Cannonball and 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 with we had a, a person that was in charge of making decisions for us. His name was Mr. John Levy, a brother, and 
he did a lot of uh, making this made a lot of decisions for a lot of different people. Nancy Wilson, the list goes on pretty long. And so Cannon was a kind of person came from college, came out of college in the South, in Florida, and he was a teacher before he came to New York. So he had that uh, that kind of uh, background. So we did play in colleges in you know New Orleans and, and Atlanta and Florida and and different places. Uh, uh, we we did that. Cannon was one of those special. He was, he was a great orator. He, he was that kind of a person. Okay, so I give you an unlimited grant. Was saying, let's just say I give you just fifty million dollars to improve the welfare of jazz. What are you going to do? I would have to think about it. Okay, that I is fair. It's it's that would be a great thing. That would be magnificent. But uh, and and the, the knowledge of this music. Uh, and getting the classics together uh, and being exposed to people. See, now there's so many ways for people to be exposed, not only on recording, not only on records, it's a lot of different ways to learn things. But uh, in learning about uh, the, the knowledge and how things began and who was doing what and how it grew over a period of time, and in different places that it, it, it was uh, it's different cities like Kansas City at a certain time, Pittsburgh at a certain period of time, and Detroit, certain, it's different places that you would have to really know about and, and people. And then you, you'd be exposed to all those things. Most people now and teachers, they can't tell people about those things because they don't know about them. And a lot of times, the teachers have never been able, to, uh, players, really players, to experience uh, a, a person that can play on a certain level themselves. So they, they can't, it's harder for them to explain this art form because it's a very complicated art form. It's a high level of being able to think, to be able to play on this art form. That's one of the reasons why um, people like to uh kind of bring things down a little bit so people don't have to think but so much. And when, and when this is a really classical art form, it really has your thinking ability, you can all, everybody can appreciate it, but you have to be able to, uh, it's a classical art form. Okay, so let me ask you it like this. At least when you were growing up, there were jazz charts, or jazz, I'm sorry, jazz songs on the top billboard charts top 10s, top 40s all the time, even top 100s. We don't have that anymore. Do you think there'll be a chance that you get a jazz song back in the top 10 in the next 20, 30 years? They have different uh, ways that these artists have been able to communicate. This recording date that I just uh, was able to make on on uh, the name of, name of the company, uh, the name of the company, uh, what is it, it? Savat yes, Records. Savat, yes, Savat Records, yes. Your latest album, Crisis. Yes. Well, they have different places where all of these artists are, are recognized and they go up the charts 
it's different, you know, forms of these different charges. Not all the same way where you'd be put against people like playing a different kind of art form. So you have people where you, if you, if you interested in the music, you is it's a, you could be exposed to it. Yes, you're on the top fifty right now. Congratulations on that, everyone. By the way, check out his latest album. We're gonna go more into that in a bit, but. What I meant is like, yes, they're jazz charts, they're country charts, they're still rock charts. I'm talking about the hot 100, like the main chart. I don't think so. Okay. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I was hoping. <laughs> <laughs> People call me negative, but I was hoping since you were, you know. Yes, I get the feeling from you. I don't think it's going to happen too soon at all. Okay, well, <laughs> let's go into... Mr. Oscar. What the art form that they're into, what they're exposed to. And then they haven't been exposed to this art form on that level. Yeah, I know. Okay. Oh, well. So, Mr. Oscar Peterson, you played in the trio. Was it the same situation how you got involved in that? You just knew him and he reached out? Something, something you was just like that. Uh, we were exposed to Oscar and Ray Brown and Ed Thickpin. Ed Thickpin, I knew him pretty well as a person here in New York, a drummer. And he joined Oscar Peterson the same year that I joined Cannonball in 59. And uh, Oscar and Ray, we have played opposite them with the Cannonball Quintet or Sextet on several occasions. In Europe, we traveled together and uh, play together in, in theaters like uh, Chicago or New York and Apollo. So we were aware of each other. So uh, I think it was Ray Brown, maybe he had been with Oscar Peterson. They had been together for a very long period of time, 12, 15, 16 years. And Thick Pen, he had been with him for six, and they were just making a change. So Oscar wanted Sam Jones, bassist with Cannon, and myself to uh, take their place and be in, in, like, in the trio. So that's what happened. And I went with the trio with Oscar in, uh, in was it, 65, I think, yes. 65. And I was there for two years, a magnificent experience, different experience. With the trio, it's a different way of approaching the instrument and Oscar. And I had never actually played with a trio before. Not not serious business like that. Oscar being on the top of the list trios. I mean, it's one of the greatest in the way has ever done it. Trios, and uh, and I had opportunity to be in the company of Mr. Duke Ellington and his orchestra and Miss Ella Fitzgerald. I mean, we would play concerts with them and, and Kyle Basie and his orchestra, Frank Sinatra, concerts on that level, and so. I, we were, uh, it was Oscar, it was a very, very unique experience. And I actually, after the two years with Oscar, uh, when I was involved with my friends my age, like Freddie Hubbard, Joe Henderson, you know, Freddie and myself lived in the same building for a long period of time in Brooklyn. We are very close. And Joe Henderson. What part of Brooklyn mask? Since I'm... Yes. What part? Uh, what, what do you call it? Bed Stuy. Bed Stuy. Okay. Yes, and and uh, um, I enjoyed being with my friends a lot during that time, making history with them. 
So I was away from Oscar for a period of time. Then I went back a second time. I was one of the only drummers that uh, had opportunity to be with him two times. So that was very unique. But uh, uh, in order to uh, play this out for, for me and survive, I did a lot of different things happened in my life. I mean, to be able to play this out for and, 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 and get married and, make, and, and have kids and make a living, living, I mean, now I'm a great grandfather. I mean, so, and because it's not only all about music and satisfying yourself. I mean, you gotta live a life and think about how you're gonna be able to uh, survive the, you know, the ups and downs uh, so it's it's a it can be a complicated situation. I mean, one of the fortunate ones that everything was not melody all the time, but uh, I've been able to come through those periods of time. One question on that: So, being married in the jazz scene back then, you're literally on the road the whole time. How was? How did your family take that? Or your partner at the time really take that? Now, see, that, that depends on you and your partner. We, the groups that I work with, we were not on the road on the whole time. I mean, with, with uh, Horace, we played, and do with Horace, I didn't have to worry about that. I was brand new here in New York. I was just so happy to be in New York and, and experiencing this to make a history that I wasn't worried about that part. I was enjoying myself. With Canon, things changed. That's when I decided to take the big step and, 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 and have a family. We were on the world more with Cannonball, but we had a, a, a really close relationship with uh, the band, the guys in the band and our families. So it really wasn't a, a large problem. I mean, I've seen things where uh, places, people like with, uh, with like Mr. Duke Ellington, his orchestra, and they would go out for long periods of time, six months. And I never experienced that, but we didn't ever go out for long periods of time. But you have to have a family and you yourself, you have to handle uh, your relationships accordingly. And everyone's different. Okay, just curious. Uh, two things on Mr. Freddie Hubbard. Now, actually, first thing I want to say is, your version of Caravan with him. Love it. Thank okay. you. Okay. Uh, it's you. literally one of my favorite versions. And I know a lot of artists have re recorded it since. Yours will always be a special one. But your classic album that you did with him, The Body and the Soul, that is, once again, one of my favorite albums. <laughs> All right. With Mr. Shorter on there, Mr. Fuller on there, you on the drums. So did you guys get to practice that or was it also last second? We'll put it together and do it. We put it together and did it. That's <laughs> all it was. This was not a group, a working group. That was not a working group. I would say this. Uh, Lee Morgan, another person I am. See, Lee came to New York same year that I did, 56, from Philly. And I came here actually from Detroit. He was with Dizzy Gillespie's orchestra, and that's how I was with Horace Silver. We got to be close friends, Lee and myself, being close to the same age. 
and, uh, and enjoy ourselves in New York. And so you got to be close. Now, Freddie from Indianapolis came in 58. And we met, and actually then, and we really got to be very, very close. Uh, and, and then when we got put in the same building together for years, like I said, there in Bed-Stuy, then we, we really got to be very close. And we spent a lot of time together. And we played together uh, on so much that it, all these things we did was not recorded, all the travel that we did together. And all the different, I have, I have things here that Freddie and myself played together and, and, and it was recorded that nobody's heard. But uh, we actually, uh, I, and made a lot of history and enjoyed ourselves as true young people here in New York. We had a band. One time I was walking down, my brother and myself, Gerald, was walking down Broadway. And I saw a little club on Broadway in, on the corner of 60-something Street. And I went in the summertime. I went in and I said to the guy, I like, because there wasn't anything going on in there. I said, I'd like to bring a group in for the whole summer. He asked me, who is in the band? I said, Freddie Hubbard, Joe Henderson, Kenny Bear and piano, and, and, and a bass, it was Herbie Lewis bass. And uh, he said, well, you have it. So I went back to the to the spot and said to Freddie, tell him what was happening. So we put a band together, we put that that, that personnel together. And we and uh, Freddie came up with the idea of calling it, calling it uh, what do you call it, what do you call it, the, 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 the uh, uh, what did he call it? Um, I think we had a little while, but anyway, he had a name that he called the big group group. And we stayed together for not a long period of time, but uh, a period of time. The Jazz Communicators, that's what it was called. The Jazz Communicators. And, 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 uh, and, and we stayed together for a period of time, and we enjoyed ourselves the time that we were together. Uh, I'm... I also enjoyed McCoy Tyler. McCoy, we, you know, we all knew each other very well, all the same age. And McCoy, actually I met him, he was with, uh, you know, John Coltrane. And, and, and so we all was connected very closely together. And McCoy, at one point in my life, I had a little group but I was not working enough at that time with the quartet that I had. And McCoy wanted to have a trio. So in other words, I, I joined McCoy and his trio. Forgotten what year that was, but it was in the 70s, some, sometime right there, 80s. Something. And so I was with McCoy for at least two or three years. And that was a magnificent time. I played with McCoy and Avery Sharp bass and myself in traveling. And that was another person that I really enjoyed and we had a wonderful time together. And how was that? Actually, before I forget, how come you, do you have any recordings with Lee Morgan? I personally, yes. which ones? It was a, it was a, a recording called, I think it was Take 12. Take 12? Okay. I can recall it was uh, uh, Clifford Jordan played tenor saxophone. And I think it was 
Barry Harris piano, and from Chicago, the bass. I can't think of club, but anyway, if there, that's something that I can remember. Yeah, that's something I got to look and find. I okay. honestly didn't know about that album. I know, yeah. embarrassing. <laughs> no, you're not embarrassed at all. I've made so many albums in my life, I don't care what call. Uh, well, hopefully one day I could be like you, sir. But back to this, <laughs> Mr. McCoy. How did you... I should say, how should I say it in general? So you're performing with him. You knew him before. You got into another trio. The trio took off. I think that's one of the things you're most known for is, uh, but what brought that to an end? It was just time to move on. I had, I went back to having my own groups. See, I had a group with uh, uh, Julia Cook, Woody Shaw, Yes. Ronnie Matthews, Stafford James. Now, that was in the 70s. We did a lot of traveling, especially in Europe. And actually, it's a recording out now. They just put out in Germany, which I didn't know anything about, but somebody made me, a person made me aware of it, and uh, they sent it to me. I have it here now. But we did some recording over there, and we also had a great time. You know, we were younger doing those things. I had a group with uh, Frank Strozier, the alto saxophonist, and Harold Mayburn, the pianist, mm -hmm. and Stafford James, the bassist. That lasted for a pretty for a pretty long time. That was another magnificent uh, time in my life. We made certain history, and it's recorded. We, uh, and it's you know, so I had a, a quartet with Bobby Watson and. Elton saxophonist, James Williams, a pianist, Clint Houston, a bassist. That lasted for a period of time. It's a lot of different things that, you know, I mean, you, you know, the life, different things, periods of time you go through. And so those were some of the, in the groups that I was involved in. And, and, and we enjoyed each other for a certain period of time. Okay, one question, though, because I remember one day I ticked off my father about current jazz music because he always used to have older albums, like from the 50s to 60s and 70s. And one time he threw me one of your live recordings with Mr. McCoy. Is this, is this modern enough? It was, even though it wasn't because it was in 1988, Uptown, Downtown. So oh, yeah. that with a big band. So did you guys, since you were telling me everything about before, did you guys actually practice before you did that session? Yes, we did. Okay. If not, right. you guys were amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yes, I remember that. That was uh, it was a trouble. Now, I did a recording with Cannonball Orchestra. Uh, I can't recall the name of that. It was studio, studio musicians here in New York. And then it was, it was a big band, but I would call it an orchestra because it was so large. Uh, the live recording? Oh, I don't no, know where that was, though. The studio. It was in the studio. Okay. And I enjoyed that, making that recording uh, with that orchestra. And, and I, I enjoyed the experience just playing with that orchestra. And I enjoyed playing with the big band with McCoy because we did it several places. We did it, had no hearing in, in the Blue Note in New York, and we did it. Uh, at another club, and we did it in Philadelphia. 
So it was a few times that we uh, was able to perform with that group, that big band. And uh, so all of that was uh, a magnificent experience and I enjoyed it all. Okay. Well, before I forget to bring this up, because this is also very important, your latest album, Crisis, okay? Okay. What made you decide to get back in the studio right now? Uh, I have this person, it was Maxine Gordon, and she's a person that we've been on each other since the 70s. Uh, she was with me when I had, it was with the group with Woody Shaw and Junior Cook, like, like that. And we dealt with him during that time, and we came back together at this time, two or three years ago. And we, we uh, first, see, I've made some recordings, three actually, uh, the Lewis Hayes Cannonball Legacy Band. I have been working with that band off and on for a period of time, because a person asked me, said, Lewis Hayes, would you uh, think about playing that music you do in Cannonball because everyone in the band has passed away but you. So I put a group together and we and I made three different recording dates featuring the Cannonball Legacy Band, Cannonball's music. Uh -huh. And this last time, she asked me what I would like to do. Now, Horace Silver, we have been close all of these years. And and uh, when he was very sick, he lived in California for a long period of time. And he came back to move back to New York, a place called New Rochelle. And he had a home there. And he would ask me, his son would ask me to uh, come in, uh, and see Horace and talk to him because he wasn't too well. And I, I did that a few times. So when she asked me what did I want to do after we got back together with, with our lifestyle and business, I said, I'd like to do a tribute to Horace on Blue Note. And uh, so she put it together, and that was uh, the recording that I made just before I made this last one. I did a tribute to Horace Silver on Blue Note. And in this one, we, she said that I wanted to do something else uh, with this group that I have, just Lewis Hayes. So me, uh, myself, and uh, the bassist, Desiree Douglas, who's on there, mm -hmm. and the fellas, uh, we, we uh, put our heads together and just came up with a, uh, a direction. And we, uh, and with Joe Fields, the, the, his company, we decided to do it with Joe. Mm -hmm. And everybody had a great feeling with that. So we went and we rehearsed and we went into the studio and we didn't have any, uh, it was just smooth and, and uh, compositions that we chose to do. I did a, a, I thought about Freddie Hubbard because we going through this crisis at this period of time in our lives. Everyone is going through a crisis with this stuff that's floating around in the air. <laughs> and, 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 uh, so, so, so I, uh, entitled it crises and, and uh, Lee Morgan, that composition, I wasn't aware of it. Uh, Desron Douglas, the bassist, he made me aware of that composition. And, and uh, that was right on. And then I had to write something. And I called it The Creeping Crud, a title of The Creeping Crud for mm -hmm. uh, when I was very young here, 
when you got something, a cold or got messed up, we would say, you know, you have the creeping crud. Uh, so I call it that title, the creeping crud, because I felt like people say this, this they call it what whatever they want to call it is floating around. I said I call it the creeping crud because it's floating around. It's, it's all over the world now. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, so we did this date, and I enjoy it very much. And the group, see, I I, I like having. Uh, I came up like this, having a working group. I enjoy that personnel that you're familiar with, and everybody enjoys each other. So. We can't stay together all the time, but uh, uh, we had taken a, a big break since these things been going on in the world, but we're beginning to come back now. And uh, this CD is, is, is really introducing us, bringing us back out all over again, starting us back again. So I'm glad that we were able to do this and I enjoy it completely. And the vocalist, Camille, yes. Camille, uh, Max Gordon, actually Gordon, she's the one who introduced me to Camille. Camille sings, as you know, and she also plays tenor saxophone. And she's good at, at magnificent both 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 doing both things. So two compositions compositions she wanted to uh, bring to this recording date said. Wonderful. So we did it like that. She wrote those? No, she did But the, the, the one, the ballad, was called, what is that title of the ballad? I'm Afraid the Bachelorette is, the Masquerade is Over? Masquerade. I had done the, we had recorded that with Nancy Wilson, with Cannonball Nancy Wilson back in, on, on that record on yeah, that's, okay. Columbia. I was right. I was like, that's confused me. That's why I was asking if she wrote yeah. that. I was like, oh? Huh? <laughs> yes, yes. But uh, the, this that next composition, what title that is? But anyway, I don't know if she had written that or not, but I enjoyed, uh, I enjoy it. And so that's oh, she did great. She did great. I gotta give her that. Uh, yes, just one question on that album, okay? So yes. Desert Moonlight comes on. You're opening it on the rides and the hi hats. What type of ride hat? I mean, what type of yeah hi hats do you use? Just because I'm. There's Sabian, and they are, I think it's I think they're size fourteen or fifteen, something like that. Okay. Yes, everyone that's listening, that's me geeking out. Okay, but yes, okay, fourteen, fifteen inches. Mm -hmm. No, they sound good, and that's how I would like it to sound next time I do an album. So. Okay. <laughs> I'm right. I'm with you. Yes. Yeah, so thank you on that part. See, I learn yeah. every episode also. Yes. Are you? Do you think you'll be able to put? Perform this album live, take it on the road, or do you think? Yes. Okay. Yes, of course, of course, yes. Something I'm looking forward towards. Okay, hopefully you have a nice gig in the city. Yes, oh. we perform uh, in in, uh, in, in, in Dizzy's, and, and we've done it. You know, that was we went this school too in Birdland, and when the jazz standard was happening, I heard that that's not available anymore. It's yeah, not available anymore. Yes, yes. But uh, we will be appearing. Okay, actually, your take on uh, the amount of jazz clubs closing, and like you said, you acknowledge that a lot of places to perform are gone. Where do you see this music going in 10 to 15 years if this keeps happening? I, I can't predict the future. I would just say 
that this art form is on such a high level that and, and people that are coming up will be able to perform this art form. It will never disappear. It just will take different forms and, and, and maybe be in different places. And uh, But it will always be here because this art form has been uh, documented. And uh, it's, it's something that in the world, when, you, when something is on this level, it doesn't just disappear. It would always be here. So I don't know what form it's going to take, but it would always be here. Okay. So who currently in the scene catches your attention? I, 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 I don't have any, any, any special group uh, artists that I'm really in tune with now other than you guys in my group, but uh, in our group, I should say. Uh, but uh, uh, I like everyone uh, who can play. <laughs> you know, because this music is like we do, you spend a lot of time uh, by yourself, most of the time, you had to spend a lot of time alone in order to put this together. So that's uh, one thing I feel about the art form is you can get a certain amount from different ways, a teacher, if you're fortunate enough, and by seeing other artists like that, but you really, I feel the average person has to be able to spend a lot of time alone in order to get anything really accomplished on a high level. And to me, that just goes along with life. I mean, to get anything done, any, anything you try to do, you have to spend, be able to spend time alone. Agreed. So what do you think of modern music in general? I think that uh, uh, you like what you like. Uh, I don't even I don't even uh, classify things like that. I don't know what it is. I know modern music to me was listening to Charlie Parker, and it's never changed. I've never got to the point where I thought that I heard I've heard something that was more on a level more modern than listening to that. So I don't know what modern music is. Understood. So what is something that you think people misunderstand about the music world since you've been in it since the 50s? Uh, it's just an art form that's uh, very, like it's sort of very creative art form that a lot of people are very interested in in the world, I mean, when you, uh, it was created here in America, but in going to Europe, going to Japan, going to other places in the world, people are really uh, are interested in this art form and try to want to be able to listen and, and, uh, and, and be able to perform this art form all over the place. So it's, uh, it's all over in the world. So it's a, uh, it's a, it's a creativity that people have. There's a, as I said before, it's a classical art form. Uh, so uh, uh -huh. that's what I feel about the art form. It's something that I always wanted to be able to play, and I'm glad that I have been 
able to do this and have been able to be accepted in this art world of this uh, playing this uh, music that I wanted to play since I was a young person. Okay. Well, have you ever been invited to play on a non-jazz album? Something that we don't know about? Uh, not really. Because I'm not trying to, I never tried to be someone that I'm not. Since I was a young person, I wanted to play what I wanted to play. And, and, and sometimes I've had little conversations and talked about that with my friends as a young person in Detroit. And it's up to the individual how you want to have your life, live your life. A lot of people during that time, a few people as they do at that time, wanted to be able to be able to uh, be a part of this uh, world and that world, be able to do certain things, different things. I think that's good. I just was not like that. I wanted to play what I wanted to play. I didn't want to uh, be a person that accompanied singers. Not that I have anything against singers. I love them. I love singers. But I wanted to be play what I wanted to play. And, and if I do something beside, so I've never done anything and never recorded with anybody that was going to take me someplace where I didn't want to be. Because I can't play the rock and roll in the first place. If you can play jazz, I think you can play rock and roll, sir. <laughs> Even R&B and the blues. You know you can play that. Uh, okay, but what would be your dream project? I don't have, actually have one right now, but I would like to just be able to, to uh, keep myself healthy as possible for longer, long, you know, for a longer period of time as possible and make people happy as when they come to see uh, the artists, our group, and enjoy myself. I've gotten to this uh, stage in my life, well, to, to this stage in my life now, so I'd like to be able to continue on a level that I want to continue on. And so that would make me very feel very, very good about this, the whole thing. I can't last for so much longer. You still sounded good in your latest album, sir. You <laughs> What is the best compliment you ever received? I can't, I can't. I, I, I'm going to get it right now. <laughs> <laughs> you. I've actually touched. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> did you ever have a nickname? Anybody oh, a, lot of, a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of them, coming through the years, a, a lot of them. Give me one of them, sir. Come on. Well, the, some people call me the, the tipper uh, because of the way I played cymbal beat. Uh, when I was a kid, they called me innocent uh, because... I think because I knew how to do a few things that wasn't correct and get away with it. Uh, uh, and the baby boy, <laughs> you, you know, so 
it's 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 a it's been quite a few <laughs> quite a few they called now my 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 relatives I mean my my granddaughter and great granddaughter like they call me Bebop. Bebop, nice. I can't forget them because let's let's deal with them. Bebop. And I'm just curious because you mentioned when you were younger, Charlie Parker was modern and everything. What is the album or song or artist that you hold the most to you, like dearly to you? Charlie Parker. But it's not one song. It's his, it's his concept, the direction that he's, he had taken this art for. Uh, that's how I, that's who I listened to the most when I was a young person. And his concept and his direction was uh, the way that I felt like I wanted to go. Now, it was, it's, it's a lot of artists that plays this art form, and I, it really, acknowledge and a lot but he's for me number one now it's a lot of people that play that I really enjoy I mean that's for sure but I feel like for me him he's number one and then I hit down this everyone else well I had a teacher who was a lot older than me when I was playing younger obviously and he didn't like Charlie Parker because he believes that was the beginning of the downfall of jazz. Now, do you believe that? Or do no, you? not me. That was a, another expression, the direction that he took. And plus, he was not the downfall of jazz. Jazz is still going. He's been going. So I probably did it for a long time. But, but, but uh, so everybody has a different views on things. And I think a person has to get their own view. I mean, I listen to people all my life speaking, and sometimes I agree and sometimes I don't. But I don't want nobody is, is going to take me on, a, on their direction. I have my own direction, life to live. I mean, I, it's hard enough to me put that together. I can't follow nobody, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. So... Was there any awards that stood out to you that you liked? Any honors? Any publishings? Anything? Uh, I have a few, few things, but that's all something that uh, I don't feel like discussing about you know those different awards. I I feel like uh, people who are in control of those things they're in control. You have you like it or you don't you you like the honors what's stored on on you or, or you don't and i'm not in control of that i what i enjoy is all of these musicians that i have been able to appear with in my life and all of these recording dates that i've made in my life and and been able to be accepted by all these great honors of the artists the musicians that's my biggest thing in life. I don't. I'm not. I'm not thinking about these people as giving out awards because most of them don't know what they talk about in the first place. I feel that's just something that is, is happening there. But, but the artists who I've been able to be uh, and, uh, and make history with in this world, 
I am completely, uh, makes me feel, I mean, on, on top of the world, magnificent. I'm so thankful for that, to be accepted and, and be able to play with these, all the great people that I've been able, magnificent artists in this world. Well, building on that, so, like I said, Blowing the Blues Away, one of my favorite albums, jazz albums of all time. So, how does it honestly feel to know that you literally left a piece of history in the world. Because I agree with you, that album's not going away. I personally went out my way to find it. And I'm pretty sure there are people who, in their early teens that listen to it. Well, all I can do is say, I've made several albums that I feel great about. That's one of them. I think Blues, Blowing the Blues Away with Horace was the last date that I did with him on Blue Note before I left the, the, the group and went with Cannonball to guess the last one I made with him. So I I felt, I'll, I'll play this with Horace. Horace, like I said earlier, he gave me the opportunity to grow because I was with a working band and Horace's writing was so magnificent and uh, I had an opportunity to express myself with Horace. And it takes a, a time, period of time, to be able to be consistent playing with his arts form. Sometimes I could play really pretty well when I was much younger, but it, it wasn't, sometimes I was consistent with it. Sometimes the level would drop and, and uh, Horace never gave me a problem with that at all. But during that time, I would say this album, uh, Finger Popping with Horace, that's when my, I would say my thinking, and I started changing my, uh, uh, my ability to be more consistent, play, when I made that recording date with Horace. And then actually the next one was Blowing the Blues Away. It was very comfortable in my own self. The ability to play at those two, at that time in my life. Okay. Well, sir, just curious, okay? I'm going to ask you an instrument. Tell me who you would actually have on your album playing it, okay? Just in your dream band. So on trumpet, who would it be? Uh, uh, There's no one right now. That I, I, would, I would dream back because everybody that's uh, it's, it's no one now uh, and plan. I have the, the people that I want to play with with me at this point right now. <laughs> I mean, I mean, I met of all time. Oh, oh, of all times. Well, it's people, it's, it's not one person for me, I don't have anybody that on each instrument that I think is the greatest in the world. I mean, I, I made a record with Dizzy Gillespie on playing trumpet. Uh, so when you play thinking of this art form, you can't get anybody on a level higher than, than Dizzy when he was right there with Charlie Parker to create this art form. Dizzy, so, I mean, you have it's your interpretation. Actually, you have Niles. Uh, I've always wanted to be able to, to deal with Miles. I, I mean, I knew him as a human being, as a person, 
and it's so I I mean I've I mean Clifford Brown you can, you can start naming people so I don't have any band that I feel like put together I mean I had an opportunity to record with J.J. Johnson playing trombone I think that uh Troubles in the world who who listen, who is listen, who are listening. A lot of them, I don't feel like they really uh, listen to JJ enough because JJ to me played his art for was the greatest who ever did it. Now that's my opinion, but somebody else can have a different opinion, and that's that's if they help. But JJ Johnson to me was. Uh, he was the epitome of being able to, to deal with the trombone with this. And Curtis Filler is my friend, close friend. We came up together in Detroit and, and slide Hamilton. Okay. Jay- yeah, you make those questions difficult. You're right. Well, you said you knew Miles personally, and I just want to know for myself, how was your interactions with him? With who? Miles. Oh, wonderful. Uh, we had, a, 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 and Miles considered me, but made it nice, he considered me one of the, the, the top people playing my instrument around during that time. So I was around him uh, sometimes in my life, and, and uh, I never had opportunity to make, uh, was on the, on the stage with him, a bandstand, playing any time. But uh, we had a we had a, a magnificent feeling together. I can I can see like Tony Williams. I knew Tony, met him in Boston when he was about fifteen. And I was with Cannon, and uh, I never heard Tony play at that time. But he would come to my room and, and I would order food and we used to talk, and we got to be very close friends. Uh, and. He would come and we would practice and warm up and practice together. And uh, we, we did that on, on some occasions. One time, Miles comes to me and, and uh, he says, Lewis, he says, I'm going to get Tony Williams. You think he's strong enough? I said, yes, I think he's definitely strong enough. And, and Tony, Tony was one, was one of the, the kind of drummers that... Uh, I really, he, he, he really tried very hard. Tony was, uh, a, loved this art form and practiced constantly. And he had his own direction. All he wanted from me, basically, was how to keep time. And he, he had other, other ways of he, the way he wanted to approach this art form himself. But like I said, he just wanted to get from me, learn from me, how, how do I keep time? And so we did certain things together. I mean, Philly Joe, I, I was, I had a, a, there's so many creative people out here and, you know, during a period of time that I was living. And everyone, you know, Robert Joe just said to me, you know, you can't do things that I did because we didn't come up on the same corners, which was true. He he lived in his generation, and I lived in mine, and 
And a lot of people, all these different police people live where they live. They came, they dealt with this orchestra, this art, dealt with this music, the way that they have to deal with it. I only, Kenny Clark was a big influence on me. Uh, Philly Joe Jones. Uh, those are people that I really admired their ability, uh, their direction while I was still here. I mean, uh, a lot of different people, you know. I mean, I'm blaking naturally. Uh, uh, Actually, yeah, that's another one I got to ask just as a drummer. So you do Art Blake, you do Art Blakey, right? Yeah, the boo, uh, he was a killer. He said, you need to shoot. Art Blakey, he could play arrangement and play and do things that just was, it's just Art Blakey. Some people to have ability to be themselves. And when when you are gifted to, when you just, whatever instrument it is, just to put a stamp on it, and you and you when you hear the person, you know exactly who it is immediately. I mean, Art Blakey can do it, you know, Miles can do it. Uh, you, you, I mean, you know, some people have their ability to uh, be that special. I mean, Earl Gardner could do it. Okay, but Art Blakey or Buddy Rich, who do you think is a better drummer in your opinion? You, I would, I would phrase it like that. Uh, they're different. I've seen Art Blakey since you mentioned that and Buddy Rich play opposite each other in Birdland. They used to do that, but Buddy Rich cannot do what Art Blakey can do. Art Blakey cannot do what Buddy Rich can do. Come on. <laughs> But Buddy Rich, his his facilities, and what he could do with his drums, you can't. He's just on that high level, magnificent level. You can't see anything about that. But if they're playing opposite each other, uh, the sound that Art Blakey could can get out of those drums, and and the way he can play and 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 play arrangement, what he can do, you can't mess with Art Blakey. <laughs> but Rich can't do nothing without Blakey. <laughs> Max Roach either. And, 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 but he can, but he can, but, but you can't mess with Max Roach. You can't do nothing with Max Roach. Max Roach, in his way, he wipe everybody out. But in his way, he does the same thing. They're all different ways of approaching it. And, and, and sound, uh, it's, it's, that's, that's the thing. I don't, the only one that I think, uh, in this art form that that for me, like I said, who put a stamp on it before Louis Armstrong, after Louis, Louis Armstrong, I feel like had it before Charlie Parker came along. He, Louis Armstrong, uh, uh, his direction was uh, the way that everyone went during his time. Louis Armstrong was the strongest out there, I feel. But after Louis Armstrong, Charlie Parker came and changed the whole thing. He changed everything. And maybe the person that you, you were speaking to, he said he, he Charlie Parker messed it all up or something like that. I can agree with what he's saying because that's what he feels. But he did change it. He, he's changed it forever. And he's never, no one else has come along so far and changed it the way Charlie Parker, maybe Louis Armstrong and Charlie Parker had. Okay. And one other thing I need to know about, 
since we were just going on this. Prince. Well, Prince was my first cousin. Yes. And my, my, my mother and his father were brothers, and our brothers and sisters. My mother is a little older than, than he is, than, than John, his father was. Uh, I didn't know Prince. Uh, they talk about him. I'm about 20, 20, about 20 years older than Prince is, I think. And our birthdays are close to the same, about a week apart. His father, we used to speak on occasion. See, they grew up in Minneapolis, and I grew up in Detroit. And uh, his father and myself used to say we were going to get together. And, and Prince knew of me, and actually, I knew of Prince. And we, at one day, at one time, we we didn't communicate. We never spoke on the phone. I didn't speak to his father. We never spoke on the phone. We never met. He knew of me, and I knew of him. And we had planned on our relatives getting this together. Now his sister, Sharon, she's almost my age. She she's lived in New York. We met in California, but she. Um, she lives in New York and Manhattan for a long period of time. We're very close now, very close for over the years. She invited me to put a band together and come back to uh, come to Minneapolis and play and, and record, rather, and record in uh, in Paisley Park, Prince's home, a while back, two or three years ago, and record her father's music and Prince's father's music. So that's what I did. And that that uh, CD is out there. And it was just an uh, experience, a magnificent experience for me to be there in Paisley Park, Prince's home. And I would have loved to have gotten to meet Prince. And they told me, especially his, his sister told me how Prince felt about me. He said he she was he was really uh, kind of uh, you know people are younger sometimes they look at you from afar and he had a lot of respect for me Prince said told me his sister told me that he really had a lot of admired me but uh, like I said we never had an opportunity to come together like that like, like I would love that we have but I keep him my keep him in my. Uh, my body all the time always will, Prince. That would have been, if you two did like a blues album together or something, I would have been like, yeah. Like, something like Purple Rain, you on the drums while he's just killing it and shredding on the guitar. I don't know if that's your thing because you said you don't like rock and roll. I mean, you can't play no, rock and roll. I don't like it. It's just some some things uh, uh, uh I'm more comfortable doing what I'm doing, but in, in some situations, anything is something else that could make you feel good. And like you said, with with Prince, something I can't. We never had opportunity, so I can't say that it wouldn't have worked because I would have loved to have done it. And I, I will say that I would love to have had, had the experience, and, and we made some history together. I would love to have made some history with cousin Prince. <laughs> Well, sir, this has been more than an honor. You're 
music legacy, your family's just plain one of a kind. Thank uh, you. Thank is there you. anything else you would like to share with us? Just, I'm just going to try. I just people keep keep listening and 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 take advantage of this art form. And uh, I'm going to try to do my best to uh, keep myself going and the art form on the highest level. Understood. Well, sir, could you tell us your social media if you have any? How could people reach out to you? Well, th things are there on Facebook and and LewisHayesJazz.com dot com, dot com, and Facebook and you know all these different ways people communicate because it's a lot there. I mean, there's a lot of uh, recordings that I've made over the years, so it's a lot there. Understood. Well, sir, like I said, it's more than an honor. Thank you for coming us on. I mean, coming. <laughs> for coming on, telling us your stories of your past. Everyone, check out his latest album. It's on most social, I mean, streaming services, Crisis. And Mr. Lewis, thank you again. Thank you. Thank you, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs> and everyone, this is Leander from Improv Exchange. Thank you. Have a good one. That's that on jazz. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Improv Exchange. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Also, please be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Improv Exchange.